Good to see you this morning. Uh, how many of you forgot about the day was the time you moved your clocks? Some of you, are, yeah, I did too. Believe it or not, this morning, I usually wake up at 5.30 on Sunday mornings and come over here. I get ready and come over here by 6 or so. And uh, I realized, I woke up and I looked at my clock and it said, oh, 4.50, great. Oh, it's 5.50, okay. So, uh, you know, I got up, did my thing, still got here. So, bummer, you guys still have a sermon. Okay. Um, so anyway, that's kind of the deal for today. I just want to share with you where we've been and where we're going. Uh, this, we're in the middle, kind of past the middle of a series called Scripture Alive. Uh, those of you who've been here know that back in November, my wife and I had a chance after all these years of ministry and all these years of living uh, to go to Israel and spend two weeks there visiting the Holy Land and the sites there and, and going through it. I know uh, Chris had shared with me, he went six years ago, something like that. Dan went about 20 years ago, something like that. Uh, and um, other people that had been had shared with me, you know, what a life-changing experience it was. And I heard that, and I understood that kind of, but I really didn't. And so when I went and I came back, people were saying what it was. And I want to tell you, folks, uh, for a believer in Christ, going to the Holy Land is incredible. And I want you to be able to go. So we're going to, I've been, I've been in the process, I'm just in the early stages of talking with a group over in Israel called Kashet, which is the uh, uh, group that we went with. It's a travel agency over there uh, about putting together a trip for us guys, uh, potentially a year to year and a half out, uh, give you time to think about it and save your dollars. And um, so we're going to be looking at that. As soon as I have something definite with that, I will let you know. But if you're interested in that, uh, I'd like to consider going to the Holy Land for probably 10 to 12 days or something like that in a year to year and a half. Uh, I will have a thing, not today, but the next couple of weeks out, you can kind of sign up for that to give us an idea how many people are interested. I've had a ton of people tell me, yeah, I'd like to go. This is when you get to sign on the dotted line. Not, I mean, you're not making a final commit, but this shows a high level of interest, okay? That's what the deal is. So, just let you know about that. Um, this morning, we're going to continue this series, though. What we've been doing is we've been looking at different locations in the Holy Land. And I've been telling you a little bit, myself, Chris, and Dan, the last couple of weeks, I've been telling you a little bit about those locations, but then talking about what scriptural things happened there and, and, and focusing on what God has uh, used those locations for because I've come to understand that location is, is hugely important as well to understand something about the context of what's going on. Uh, the first week in the series we talked about, I shared with you that we went to the Wailing Wall. It's called the, the Wailing Wall in, in Jerusalem. It's a place where uh, people go, mostly Jewish people go there to pray. And I talked about prayer that week and how when it impacted me, we went there on the beginning of the Sabbath uh, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, the second week we talked about, talked about the, shared about the Jordan River and the significance of that and, and Jesus' baptism when we talked about baptism. And if you like to hear any of these messages and about what it was about, you can't see the pictures online, but you can at least go and hear the messages. They're online at our, at our website, www.greatoakscc.org. I think that's right. Okay, I got that pretty much close. Anyway, uh, it's in your bulletin. Just look it up. And then the third week, the third week I talked about Nazareth, the town where Jesus kind of grew up uh, when he was a, a kid, and then later went back to... Uh, when we went there, uh, we were in a little temple that uh, is a rec uh, recreation of the temple that uh, Jewish, or actually a Jewish synagogue that was there that Jesus would have probably first taught in. And when he went there, and we talked about that about uh, three weeks ago. Then a couple of weeks ago, Chris took us to the Sea of Galilee, and we talked about some th events. He shared about some events that went on there. And then he talked about a parable that was in Scripture that Jesus taught when he was by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he spent a lot of time in that region. 
And then last week, Dan, our children's pastor, talked about Caesarea Philippi, a location that's a really interesting city, and I hope uh, if you go there, we can go there as well, because it's really impactful to think about what Jesus taught when he was in that region or in that place. Only one time in Scripture that we'll see in that region, it says, and that's when he asked the question, who do you say that I am? And it makes a lot of sense in the context of Caesarea Philippi when you go there and understand that it really wasn't a city. It was just a place where there was a bunch of temples for all kind of gods. And Jesus asked that question. Now today, today, and I'm going to give you what we're doing today in the next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking, we're kind of going back to Jerusalem again. But we're going to spend the next three weeks, today and the next couple of weeks around Jerusalem. So go ahead and fill up the map here. And I'll talk about this. Uh, this is kind of like the outline of, of old... The Am I back on? Okay, there we go. I'm not going to walk over there. I'm going to stay over here. Um, this is kind of like the outline of the old city, the ancient Jerusalem. It's much bigger than that now, but uh, the old city. But it kind of gives you an idea of where it is. Uh, up here in this place up here is the Mount of Olives where we're going to visit today. Hugely important, you'll understand. Next week, we're talking about this location right here called the Garden of Gethsemane. And, uh, and we're, it's a huge, another important place. And then on Easter Sunday, three, three Sundays from now, we'll be talking about Calvary, uh, Calvary and Golgotha uh, and also the Garden Tomb. And it's, there's either two locations. I'm basically going to talk about this place up here and, um, because that's where I've actually visited both of those. But uh, uh, talking about how that was impactful and what had happened there and those events around Easter as well. Okay, so let, let you know where, we're, where we've been, where we're going. Um, you can just keep a map up there for a while, but I want to spend a few minutes talking to you about the significance of the Mount of Olives. Man, this is one of the most impactful places and one of the most mentioned places in Scripture uh, as far as location. Back in the Old Testament, it's mentioned several times. For instance, the Mount of Olives is mentioned as, as uh, once in relation to King David. It says that King David, when his son Absalom wrested control from him in Jerusalem, and he, and he pushed him away, it said David and his followers fled the city via an eastern route. And this is what it says in 2 Samuel 15. David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people were with him, covered their heads too, and were weeping as they went up because they'd been driven from their, from their homeland, from their Jerusalem, by David's son. Later, King Solomon used the Mount of Olives as a place, it says in Scripture, to uh, set up two idols to, wor to worship uh, uh, false gods. Uh, it said, on the hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chimoth, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So it's another place we see the Mount of Olives. Also in one of Ezekiel's, one of the Old Testament prophets, it says that the prophet saw the glory of the Lord depart from Jerusalem and come to rest upon the mountain to the east. This is directionally east, and that's where the Mount of Olives is, right there. And then, and then in the New Testament, we see that Jesus uh, made many visits to the Mount of Olives. Uh, it talks about it in Luke 21, and in Luke 22, verse 39, it says it was usual, it was unusual occurrence for him to go there. It actually uses that term, that he went there often when he was there um, in, in, in the region of Jerusalem. And every time Jesus visited his friends, his good friends in Scripture, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he would go uh, across the Mount of Olives because Bethany uh, is located, and it shows to Bethany here, he got to go across this whole area of the Mount of Olives. He'd go across and go to where his good friends were. And so that was there as well. Now, today we're going to talk about uh, something that happened actually in the last week of Jesus' earthly life because there's three occurrences. We're going to go talk about one of them. Three occurrences or records of Jesus visiting the Mount of Olives during the last week of his earthly life before he uh, experienced uh, what we call the Passion, which is his, uh, his arrest, 
his trials, his uh, crucifixion, and his resurrection. Um, during his earthly life, three times he visited the Mount of Olives. The first time, uh, and, and we're going to talk about that one today, was to deliver what has become known as the Olivet Discourse. It happened on the Mount of Olives, it's a discourse, and it was recorded in actually three of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we're going to look at the, Ma- the Mark passage today. The second time we see during that last week of Jesus' life, we he- hear about the Mount of Olives, is when we call the Triumphal Entry. When Jesus left the Mount of Olives and he rode a donkey uh, uh, in the area of Bethany and Bethpage and then on the east side of the Mount of Olives and then he came to a place where he, he went into the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And while he was still on the Mount of Olives, as Jesus went across, it says in Scripture in verses 41 through 44 of Luke 19, it says, while he was on the Mount of Olives, Jesus looked at the vista in front of him and he wept over the city and pronounced a judgment against it. And then the third thing uh, that we see but last week of Jesus' life, Jesus' third visit during the week of the Passion was on the night he was betrayed. And that evening he began, it began with the Last Supper. We're going to talk about that later on, and not today, but the next couple of weeks. Uh, he, last Supper in Jerusalem, and it ended in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we're going to look at next week on the Mount of Olives. Even after his trials, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, Jesus once again stood on the Mount of Olives. And, uh, and we see that in Scripture as well. So we see all those things. The Mount of Olives was hugely important. And, and matter of fact, um, when I visited there, the thing that impacted me a lot was just how it is today. Because according to the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, uh, Jesus, it says in Scripture, will return not only in the same way, but the same place that he originally came. In a prophecy related to the end times, Zechariah states this. It says, on that day... This is in Zechariah 14.4. On that day, his feet, Jesus' feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. And, and, and so this same location where David in the Old Testament wept because of his rejection by his son, where Jesus was betrayed and, and, and rejected, it says in the Bible, Jesus will return in the second coming. Now, the interesting thing about this is when I was there at the Mount of Olives, let's go to the next picture. Uh, the next picture, this is actually what it kind of looks like today. Not kind of, this is what it looks like today. This is a picture we took. We are standing right here, this, right here. We're on the Mount of Olives here looking across. This right here is the wall of, uh, across in Jerusalem. This is the Temple Mount right here, and that's all of ancient uh, old city Jerusalem in the background here. And so you look across this valley, it's called the Kidron Valley right here that runs through here. You can't tell the elevations here, but it's really, this area that we're standing on is much higher actually than the area across from it as well. And so you see all these, it looks like uh, tombs. Yeah, there's a bunch of them there. Let's go ahead and show a couple other pictures. I'll tell you why they're there. Uh, here's a bunch more. As you look down, the, down through there, there's all these, uh, uh, these places where people bur- bury their bones are there. Uh, give me another picture, another one. Here's a little bit wider view. Lots of them. A little bit wider view. Ah, oh, you see them all over the hillsides here. And actually, there's three locations on there that you'll see this. There's estimated that there's close to 150,000 of these people, uh, Jewish people buried there. The reason they're buried there is this. They take that Zechariah passage. Once again, remember the Jewish people do not see Jesus as the Messiah. So they take that passage of Zechariah, and what they do is they see it as the first coming of the Messiah. That when he will come, it says, you know, he'll come, he'll have the entry into the king, in, through the, what they call the eastern gate. 
And when he comes, it says all of those who were dead will rise and follow him. So they all want to be first in line. It's kind of the deal here. That's why they want to be buried here. You know, like, you know, the end times, uh, Jesus comes, we're first in line, we jump out of the ground and we follow him through the eastern gate into Jerusalem and, you know, into whatever's going to happen after that. That's why they're all buried there. Interesting, right? Based on what scripture says. Okay, we're going to look at that today. So um, I want to talk about, though, when I was there and remembering seeing this, it reminded me of this Olivet Discourse, this something, this, and, and I, you don't have to remember it called that, but it's this story about Jesus teaching about the end times. And, and um, so I want to talk about that today. So if you have your Bibles in whatever format, turn to Mark chapter 13, Mark chapter 13, and we're going to look at that. And then at the very end of this message today, we're going to look at one other passage in Acts chapter 1. So those are the two places you want to bookmark. Mark 13, Acts chapter 1. And uh, we're going to talk about this for a little while today. A very interesting passage. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. I, I picked this because it's kind of the shortest of the three, uh, three uh, teachings of Jesus. All about the same thing. Some of them have a little bit different details, but generally about the same thing in Mark, Ma- Matthew, and in Luke as well. But Mark 13, 1 and 2, it says this. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, Look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. Now, let me stop there a minute and say something about that. For those of us who have been there, it is amazing to think about how they built those walls. The walls around Jerusalem, the walls around Jerusalem are built of these humongous stones. Cat engineers, you would be impressed. Because the, the deal is this, these stones, some of them are 40 feet long. And they're huge. And they're put together without mortar. They're shaped in such a way that they all fit together in this huge wall. And you, I can't imagine what it looked like 2,000 years ago when it was, was kind of new. It wasn't even new then. It was probably 1,000 years old then. Some of it was. But it was, but it was newer. It was impressive. It was awesome. I mean, to, to people of that day, but even people, when I was looking at the walls, I'm going like, oh, my gosh. That is amazing. And so they, these disciples were there, and they were probably at this place here. Go to the next slide here. They were probably on the temple steps. This, these are actually the steps that's around the temple mound there. Going, it would have been, these would have been the steps that Jesus would have walked on to go up to the temple. Uh, go ahead and give me the next slide as well. This is another angle of those same steps. These are the steps. And you see right here, it looks like there's a bunch of uh, really bad uh, plaster work done. That used, to be, that used to be the opening to go into the temple. But after all the history and all the stuff that's happened, uh, actually, uh, I don't know which group did this, but one of the groups that conquered, uh, conquered this actually closed this off so there's not access from that direction to the Temple Mound because they want to control that because it's, it's usually important. And so, but these steps here is probably where Jesus taught this, this message right here, uh, where he said, hey, you know, he's leaving the temple, he's on the steps. One of his disciples said, man, look at this. Look at this place. Isn't it amazing? This is just a little tiny piece of this humongous place. And he said, look at these impressive stones in the walls. And Jesus says in the next verse, Jesus replied, yes, look at these great buildings. Then he says something that kind of stuns them because they don't reply for a while. It says this in the next verse, but they, he said, yeah, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. And so, and he kind of leaves it there. So he's at the temple. And there's this pause there. We don't get that because we read scripture kind of straight through without thinking about the timeline. 
sometimes because in verse 3, they've changed locations. In verse 3, it says, later, how much later? It was about a half a mile from the temple steps, at least a half a mile across the Kid, down the Kidron Valley. And let me tell you, this place is not easy to walk, folks. That's one thing. If you go to Israel, wear your walking boots, okay? Your hiking boots. Because even we didn't go to the 20-mile hikes like Chris went on. We, I lost seven pounds when I was in Israel, just walking, you know, and I ate like a crazy person too. Good food, but crazy person. And, and I got back and my wife was so mad, she gained two pounds, I'd lost seven, but she works out all the time like a crazy person. So, and, and the thing is, and so she was used to it, I wasn't. And, and the thing was, is that you walk up and down, and so this is a long walk down a hill and back up a hill to the, go through the Kidron Valley and back up to the Mount, the Mount, of, Mount of Olives. And it says, later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple, looking back to where he'd had this conversation and it says, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him. They've been thinking about this. He said, all these stones are going to be destroyed. Nothing's going to be step, uh, happening. They said, tell us, when will all of this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? Now, I found a couple of pictures that kind of gives us an idea of what it might look like in Jesus' day. This is a picture of, from the Mount of Olives right here. Looking back toward Jerusalem, it didn't have all the stuff like we see now, but probably looked more like this. Might have been a little bit more. These are some guys kind of hanging out here. The Mount of Olives is overlooks. People like to go there because you could, it's much higher elevation than the, the city of Jerusalem. Even Jerusalem is built on a hill. It's called a city on a hill. But the thing is, it's much higher so you can see the whole panoramic view. You know, I mean, how many of you go to, like, is there any high places around here you can go look at? Yeah, uh, um, Grandview Drive. You can go look at the river, you know. There's a couple places here. I used to live in Virginia, you know, and I lived, I lived about 10 minutes from the Appalachian Trail, so I'd go up there and hike up to the highest place I could find. And look, I lo don't you love to do that kind of thing? It was a cool thing. So people like this. It's one of the reasons it's so popular. And then there's another picture here, uh, next picture, of uh, probably what it looked like when Jesus was up there teaching some of his disciples as he points back toward Jerusalem. He's talking to them. We don't know which, you know, this, which one this artist decided this was at. It was more than just the four disciples that showed up and asking questions. But he was there looking back. So this is kind of what it looked like. He's there teaching. He's there teaching them. And he, and he says, they ask this, these two questions. Tell us when will happen and what sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled. When are you going to come back and when is this going to happen and how do we know what's going to happen? So Jesus Jesus begins the process of talking to them. But before he tells them some of the signs, because verses 7 through 31, Jesus goes into a lot of detail. And some of you will be disappointed today because I'm not going to spend hardly any time in 7 through 31, okay? Because it's all these details that if I had time to do it, I would try to talk to you about it. But it's some of the most debated scripture in all of scripture because it's so many things about specifics that happen in the end times. But I think you'll understand when I finish today why I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. Um, but before he spends all the, talks about all the details, Jesus gives them a warning in verses 5 and 6 of Mark 13. He says, Jesus replied, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and they will deceive many. Many people will be deceived by these people who say, yeah, I'm the one. I got the answers. Follow me. He said, that'll be something that's going to happen. Now, let me just briefly look at verses 7 through 31 and tell it what it, uh, what it talks about. Jesus then begins in this passage of Scripture to talk about, here's some of the things that's going to happen before the end times, before the second coming of Christ, before he comes back. And he names things. You can read this yourself. You can read through it. And, and he says things. He said, some of the things that are going to happen is there are going to be false messiahs. 
There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be uh, worldwide turmoil. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. There's going to be pestilence and other troubles. Let me ask, is there any of those things that ever happened in history? Ever. Yeah, everything happened. It's kind of confusing because you're relating like, like, well, you know, this period, and people will go because there becomes an increased period when there's more pestilence or more famines and stuff. They'll say, this is it. But this has happened throughout history. That's the confusing part of this. But then also in this passage of scripture as well, uh, Jesus speaks about the persecution that the followers of Christ would face. He says, during this period of time before I come back, many of you will be persecuted. They probably didn't like to hear that part. And then, and then he encourages, also in verses 7 through 31, he also encourages his followers to endure all the suffering for his name's sake. And then he describes the power and majesty that will be seen when he returns. So we have all that happens in those verses. He goes through all these details that people debate about. Well, this is happening, or this is happening, and this has already happened. We've got to check that off the list. And, you know, and are the one I love, you know, I don't, I'm, in different passages, it'll say, like, well, before the end of time, the, the Christ will be preached to the whole world. You know, a lot of people, you know, so some of their thing is, we got to preach Christ to the whole world so we can check that off the list so, so Christ can come back. I wonder why they don't go like, let's all be persecuted. That's not as fun, right? If we're going to check things off a list, let's just go ahead and do the whole thing. But the reality is that's what he talks about there. And the reason I'm not want to spend a whole lot of time, and I want to say this, there's lots and lots and lots of things in Scripture that tell us that Christ is going to come back, that give us a lot of details about different things that are going to happen, but what we need to focus on is, yeah, it's going to happen. We need to live in anticipation of that. We don't know when it's... Because in verses 32 and 33, Jesus says this. He says, after talking about all these things that are going to happen before the end of time, he says this. Remember, this is Jesus. However, anytime there's a however, he means like everything coming before us is contingent upon this. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Who's he talking about? Himself. You're going like, well, this is Jesus God? Yeah, in my theology, Jesus is God. But when he came to earth, he limited what he knew and what he, so he could, could live among us and, be, and experience all that we could experience. He was God, and when he went in, the minute he was crucified and resurrected, he knew all the stuff. He knew the times, that everything was going to happen. But before that, he says, even I don't know while I'm here. He says, only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard. Stay alert. He's saying that in spite of, of all these things that I've given to you, I don't care what, how, much, how many of these signs show up, you're still not going to know when it's going to happen. Another place it talks about several times in Scripture, it uses a term like a thief in the night. But we just won't know. But it says, in spite of that fact, we should live with anticipation that he will do what he says. There is a plan and a promise that God, Christ will come back, that only the Father knows. But in spite of that, in spite of the fact that these words are in Scripture from Jesus himself, the reality is throughout history, people have tried to predict the time of his returning. I love history. How many of you like history? Anybody like history? Some of you hate history, you know. I love history. 
If you don't know history, you repeat the same mistakes everybody else makes. That's why history is important. I'd rather them make the mistakes and I'll learn from them than do it myself. But some of you like to do them yourself, so let's go right ahead, okay? Don't learn anything from history. History is important. But I learned a lot about history. In, in the year, for instance, let me tell you about this. Yeah, Jesus said this. But then in the year 375 AD, I'm just going to give you a summary of this because I could be here for hours talking about all the predictions of the end times. But let me just give you a quick summary. In the year 375 AD, just 375 years after, de- after death, an early Christian writer proclaimed this. He says, There is no doubt that the Antichrist has already been born, firmly established in his early years, and in a few years will achieve supreme power, which means in the time. 375 AD. In the year 500 AD, a guy named Hippolytus wrote that Christ would come back that year in the year 500 AD. He said, without a doubt, he was, he was, a, he was a philosopher and a writer, and he said, there's no doubt he'll come back this year. And then for some reason, we always have some kind of fascination with years that start with like a thousand and 2,000 and other numbers. In the year 1,000, there were tons of people who had predictions of the coming of Christ. It was even recorded in history that in the year 1,000, that so many people were sure of the Lord's coming, they didn't even plant their crops that year. I wonder what they did the next year. Probably starved, you know? But they were sure it was going to happen. And then, and then in, in, in 1500s, Martin Luther wrote, we have reached the time of the white horse of the apocalypse. This world won't last any longer. It's done. Martin Luther said that. And, and I didn't really know this until recently. I was reading some historical things. It's a little known fact that Christopher Columbus in 1492 sailed the ocean blue. Remember that? You know, um, Christopher Columbus was a student of biblical prophecy. And he wrote a volume called The Book of Prophecies in which he predicted that the world would end in 1556. And then, for some reason, in the year 1666, just think about that number, 1666, uh, there's an explosion of end times speculation. One pastor wrote in his journal, every time a storm has hit this year, the church was full of people waiting for Jesus. And then in 1800s, and actually the year 1800, William Miller predicted the return of Christ in 1844. And so that year, all over the, mid, the northeast of America, half a million people called Adventists awaited the end of the world. And it reportedly, some of the disciples of Miller, uh, hope for, hoping for a head start to heaven, they went to graveyards or went up on, on hills and climbed trees so they'd be closer and get kind of like the people in the graveyard in, in, in Jerusalem. Kind of like to get a head start on the deal, you know? And it didn't happen. They climbed down the tree, went back home, did it again a year later. Still didn't happen. And they kind of like, he kind of lost momentum with his movement uh, after that. And in 1992, a guy named Harold Camping predicted the end of the world. I mean, he made a big splash about this. I don't know if you've read that. It was in papers and all kind of stuff. And, and again, nothing happened. And then he changed the day. He said, oh, I miscalculated. It's going to be in 1993. He said, no, I miscalculated. He says 1994. Kind of lost credibility after the third time. I guess three strikes, you're out. So I don't know what the deal is. Now, all of these people had one thing in common. You know what it was? All these people that predicted the end times had one thing in common. They must not have read the Bible. Because Jesus says, 
clearly, this is not a gray area. He says clearly, no one will know, not even the angels, not even the son, only God. So why do we get all excited about having to know the exact date? What's the deal? I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another person that's a great theologian. He was a Protestant theologian during World War II. He was in prison for taking a stand against Hitler. And yet he continued to urge fellow believers to resist the Nazi tyranny. And a group of Christians believing that Hitler was the Antichrist, you could understand that, right? That's common, seems pretty, pretty reasonable. They asked Bonhoeffer, why do you expose yourself to all this danger? Jesus will return any day, and all the work and suffering will be for nothing. But Bonhoeffer replied to them, he says, if Jesus returns tomorrow, then tomorrow I will rest from my labor. But today I have work to do. I must continue the struggle until it's finished. See, Bonhoeffer was right because what Jesus is saying in Scripture, it is not for us to determine when, the when of the Lord's coming, but it is for us to be expectant of his coming that we might be found doing what the Master has called us to do. Jesus kind of ends up this little passage of Scripture in Mark 13 with a, with, with a little illustration in Mark, Mark 13, 34 through 37. He says this. He says, The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. And when he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do. And he told the gatekeeper to watch for his, his return. And then he kind of explains what he means. He says, you too, talking about us, everybody who's a follower, you too must keep watch. For you don't know when the master of the household will return. In the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak, don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone, watch for him. I say to you what I say to everyone, watch for him. See, the application in these verses to me is very clear, incredibly clear, that Jesus has ascended to heaven. Before he left, he said he would return one day. And he says, in the meantime, you need to do what he gave us instructions to do. And what does he tell us to do? We're going to talk about this more in a few weeks when we talk about in April. We talk about the purpose of our church and what the future holds. But I just want to kind of end today by talking about Jesus' final instructions for us while we wait with anticipation he's coming back. What does he say? Well, in Acts chapter, if you've got your Bible again, turn to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, he says this. After, and this, this takes place after he has, uh, after all the events of Easter, He's back on the earth, uh, he's, he, he's been resurrected, and he's re appeared to people. He says, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and get to the, the apostles and gave the many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. But on one occasion when he was eating with them, he gave them this command. And this is what he told them to do first. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of the, my father promised when you heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then he gathered around him, uh, they, he get, they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at th this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They're still asking, when's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? That's all their focus is. But he said to them, once again, I mean, how many times you got to say to your kids the same thing over and over before they get it? A thousand times? Yeah, sometimes. And sometimes our wife say to us, our husband's like, you know, honey, you know, do this. And you, did you do this? Have you done that? Anybody, don't raise your hand if you're irritated about that. But, you know, the reality is sometimes you have to be reminded over and over. As Jesus reminds, hey, guys, I've already told you this, but 
Verse 7 in, in, in Acts chapter 1, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority. He'd already taught this before, but he tells them again. And then in Acts 1.8, this is going to be a focal passage in the month of April. He says this, But when you receive power, but when you will receive power, when, uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And he says, this is what will happen. While you wait, after you've received this power, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then it says this, after this he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight, and they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, saying, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Jesus says to us in Scripture, clearly, clearly, we're not privy to the time and date. I mean, it's all right to speculate, but don't spend your life focusing on it. And I know some people that spend their whole life just, well, I know the time is near. I know the, yeah, the time is near, one day nearer than it was yesterday. Okay? And that should excite us because we know God is it's one day closer to coming. And putting this world out of its misery. I, no, no. <laughs> Sometimes you think that, right? But the reality is, the reality is we're not privy to... To, to the date or time. But we know, according to Scripture, over and over again, it says he will return. But he says, while you're waiting, while you're focusing, while you're, don't just sit on your hands and look up into the sky and go, when are you coming back, God? He says, I want you to do something. I want you to be my witnesses. And I want you to do it in your community where you live, in your region, and around the world. We're going to talk about what that means during the month of April. But God has said, hey, be on alert. No, I'm going to come back. But while you're waiting, focus on being and doing what I've called you to be and do. If you don't know what that is, if you don't know what, what God has called you to be and do, next week sign up for class, or sign up for class 301. Because Mike Hazelbush is going to take you through a little thing to help you discover what your ministry is. You're going like, I'm not a minister. Yes, you are. If you're a Christian, you have a ministry. It doesn't mean you get paid for it. Okay? You might like to get paid for it, but maybe, maybe you will someday. Who knows? But you have a ministry because God has given you your spiritual gifts. He's given you your heart, your passions. He's given you your abilities. He's given you your personality. And he's given you experiences. And he wants you to take all those things and shape them to help you to know how to be a witness to others wherever you are. And Mike will tell you exactly how you can begin to focus and discover what that is. But God's saying, hey, I'm going to come back. Man, you guys should be excited about that. But you're not going to know when. So in the meantime, keep doing what I called you to do. Be my witnesses. The question is, what will you do until Jesus returns? Because he is. And he wants you to be doing what he called you to do. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much this, this morning for this time. We pray that you would just enable us this morning, God, to understand your word clearly. We pray that you would, uh, more than anything, help us to, to uh, be excited about, uh, about the fact, God, that you have a plan and a purpose in place in our lives and in this world. 
That someday, God, you will come back. But in the meantime, what should excite us is this. You want us to be a part of that plan. You want us to be involved in being a witness to people around us. And it means a multitude of things which we're going to kind of unwrap uh, starting the first Sunday in, in April. And we pray, God, that you would just help us to understand what that means for us individuals and as a church and as a community of believers in this world. We pray, God, that you would just continue, continue to encourage us day to day, even as we go through the struggles, that we would stand firm with you, God, and that we would uh, understand that you love us so much that you don't want to just be God who's off up there, but you want to be a God who has a personal relationship with us that, and who works through us through your spirit. And through that spirit, God, you will empower us to do things we think we can't do. And when we see that, God, and we see you at work, we'll be amazed. I thank you for that, God. I thank you for your incredible love for us. I pray that you would just guide us this morning as we go from this place that we'll all examine where we are and ask ourselves the question, what will I do until Christ return? Will I just kind of stand around, just show up in church on Sundays, think that's enough? Or will I be involved, intimately involved in, in your work, God, in a world that needs you so badly? Guide us now, God. Empower us to do your, your work. We ask these things in Jesus' name.